0: Good morning, it's uh, good to be here, good to be back after holiday and uh, break and uh, come back refreshed and uh, praise the Lord, it's good to sing the living word, Jesus, it means so much to us and we're going to turn to the written word, his written word in the Bible and if you'd like to turn to Ephesians 2 and while you do that just to could mention that one or two folks of our folks are in hospital, just to let you know that uh, Christine Taylor went into hospital on I think it was Thursday or Friday, and uh, she's in Ward 27. with a real problem with her back; it's to do with a bulging disc or something like that. Um, Marjorie Hall is in hospital; that's Beryl's sister, and she's in Ward 11, having tests. And let's remember as well, Catherine Steeples and their family. that uh, Catherine's mum is in hospital. Very. She's, I think, she's in her nineties, really, with heart problems. So, uh, just a few th- folks there for your <laughs> thoughts and prayers. <laughs> so, we, we're resuming our look at Ephesians, going through Ephesians chapter two. We've uh, gone through chapter one. This great letter, which is uh, just f- so full of rich uh, teaching about Christ and about the Greatness of our salvation and how we should live as part of the church of Christ. And uh, if you like, chapter one was a general introduction to this amazing plan of salvation that God's provided. And in chapter, at the end of chapter one, Paul, if you remember, launched into this amazing prayer for the church at Ephesus, but it was a wider (coughs) letter than that. It was a circular letter, so it went to various churches. And in that prayer, Paul prayed that the believers might enter into all all of the fullness of their salvation and really enter into the inheritance, the riches that are theirs in Christ. And uh, in chapter 2 now, he, he begins to work out in detail how this applies to individuals. And how it applies to our personal lives. And what he does is, in chapter 2, he begins by describing the hopelessness of the natural person. The person we are outside of Christ. And the helplessness that we're in, that we, that, that we experience. Our standing, our true standing before God. And I like to give a title to messages. My title for this message is, Surely We're Not That Bad. Are we? This isn't to depress you, this message. We'll get through it. And at the end, I hope our hearts will be bursting with praise to God for what he has done. But I want to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I'm going to finish there. We're only actually going to really concentrate on the first three verses. But before we do, let's pray again. And our Father God, we we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that people down the years have even given their lives so that we can read this, the Bible, in our language, in a way that we can understand. And Lord, we thank you. It's a precious word, but we cannot understand the truths in it unless your Holy Spirit helps us. And so, Lord God, Almighty God, come and help us, we pray, by your Spirit. Ask for your, I ask for your help. I know, Lord, that I am t- so dependent on you. And we pray that you'd speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 1 of that passage, and if you have a Bible, there's church Bibles as well, somewhere in the seats in front of you. It's good to to see these together, look at these scriptures together. In in verse 1, Paul describes in graphic terms what we are like. He says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, that is very strange. We, we suppose we get used to these words, but that is a strange thing to say, to describe people who are living, walking, breathing as dead. So, what is he speaking about? Well, clearly, he's, he's speaking about spiritual death, not physical death. He he makes that clear, doesn't he? Verse. Um, 1 again and, and then into verse 2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Or in the NIV in which you used to live. So their dead stay was while they were living and walking and breathing. But when they trusted in Christ, he said, then they were made alive. They were given life. Now when you look in other parts of the Scriptures, you find that there is a very clear definition of what life is. What is spiritual life? If you just turn with me to John chapter 17 and verse 3, Jesus defines it for us. John 17 and verse 3. He says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they may know God the Father the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent so what's life? well it's clear isn't it life real spiritual life eternal life is knowing God the Father and knowing God the Son that defines what life is it's to know and have that relationship with God in a very real precious way the opposite of life is death so to be spiritually dead is to be without life, without the life of God, separated from the life of God, the Father, and separated from Christ. So if I don't know Jesus as my Saviour and I'm not in a relationship with God, I am dead. And You're dead. The Bible says that. We are dead outside of that relationship. If you look at, going back to Ephesians 2, Paul, he just sort of Hammers it. Nails it. Um, Ephesians 2 verse 12. Where he sort of expands on this. Where he says. He says that at that time. In other words before you became a Christian. Before you were saved. You were without Christ. Separated from Christ. You were without Christ. Being aliens. Aliens. Separate from the commonwealth of Israel. You didn't belong to the family of God. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. You you didn't have the word of God in your heart and in your life. Having no hope and without God in the world. see the emphasis there. It's, It's without God, without Christ, separated from God and the life of God. And that's death, spiritual death. And it struck me, he doesn't mince his words. He didn't say you're nearly dead. <laughs> or you're, wh- you're half dead. Or you're ill and you're desperately ill and, you, and you're nearly dead. You're actually dead. Totally dead. No life. I, if you're of my age in era, you might remember Monty Python's... Yeah, some of you might do anyway. And what, my mind went back to that classic sketch of the parrot, the dead parrot. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just well, just listen anyway. But in this, in this great sketch, my memory, anyway, reminds me, where John Cleese brings in this parrot, which is dead, which he bought from the, the pet shop. And he says, it's dead. You saw me a dead parrot. And, and, the, and the owner says, no, nope, no, nope, it's just resting. And he says, I know a dead parrot when I see one. This is stone dead. And he says, no, nope, just stunned. <laughs> it goes on like this. And this is what John Cleese says. He says, stunned? He says, this parrot has passed on, it's expired, it's gone to meet its maker. This parrot is no more, it has ceased to be. This is a late parrot, it's a stiff, it's rung down the curtain and joined the choir invisible. This is an ex-parrot, and it goes on, it's great. I haven't done it justice, but that's, that's what it does. And I was thinking, how, on earth, how else can you describe something that's dead? It's just dead. It's X. It doesn't. It's it's gone out of existence. And when it comes to speak speak of our spiritual condition, the Bible says we're dead, without Christ, dead in trespasses and sins, dead to the life of God, dead to God. I was trying to think of how to illustrate this, and I thought of the pet world. And just imagine that you're, a, I don't know if you've got a dog as a pet, imagine you've got a dog as a pet, and it's with you in the lounge, in your front room, or wherever you, wherever you meet, and you're watching television. And you're watching, te- you're watching a thriller. Or you're watching a comedy, and you're laughing at the comedy. Now, does your dog wag its tail at the jokes? Or, or, or does it cry at the sad bits? No, obviously not. Why? Well, it has sort of no reference to the telly. Well, unless there's a dog barking on the telly. But it has no reference to the telly. It, has, it, it, it doesn't relate to anything that's going on on that telly. Or if you, if you go into that room and the dog's there and you've you put on your best suit, you know, or your ni- nicest dress, you know, does the dog think, ooh, must be going for a meal today or something like that? No, it just doesn't relate to that. It's dead to that. Or if you're walking your dog and you go past a beautiful woman, you know, does that dog, assuming it's a boy dog, whistle, you know? (laughs) No, (laughs) unless it's got a beautiful dog. (laughs) But you've got a very clever dog. It doesn't, does it? Because it's dead to that sphere of life. It just cannot relate. And Paul says, you and I were dead to God. We could not relate to God. We have have no connection with God. We No real understanding of God. Totally cut off from him. Totally unable to find him. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. But who's Paul speaking to? Well, as I said before, this was a circular letter written to churches in Asia Minor. So it was to Ephesians and all in that Turkey area, what we call Turkey now and known as Turkey. And in that church and churches, there would have been those people who knew that when they, before they became Christians, they were dead to God. There were many from pagan backgrounds, many um, living more, probably morally bad lives, and, and that. there were some who were very clearly dead. But there were others, like Paul himself, who came from, from a very religious background, and lived very decent lives and good lives and upstanding lives. and moral lives. And yet Paul says, no, it's not just some, it's all. You were all dead. Even you good people. Even you nice people. And you decent people. And you religious people. You were all dead. Before you became a a Christian. In fact, in verse 3, he includes himself very clearly, doesn't he? Um, Chapter 2, verse 3. Among whom also we, me included... Paul once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath just as the others so here's Paul he was an upstanding Jew he was seeking to please God he was trying to obey the laws of God and yet he says even I was dead in that condition dead to God a child, or a, by nature, children of wrath. Ooh. It's a bit hard, isn't it, Paul? A bit harsh. You're saying that I was a child of wrath? What does that mean? I think it means this. It means that the things that I did, and you did, that brought down us the wrath of God, the judgment of God, we did because of our nature. By nature, we are children of wrath. In other words, the sin, the wrong, the bad things, the thoughts that pollute me in God's eyes and take me away from God, they're part of my DNA, my spiritual DNA. There's something in me that draws us, draws you and me, away from God to sin. So, later on in, uh, or rather, verse 2, he Speaks of children of disobedience. I think it's verse 2. Yeah, children, sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. It's another way of saying that disobedience is in our spiritual genes, if you like. It's just there. Rebellion against God runs right through the human race ever since our first ancestor Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden that had devastating consequences so that we all are born dead that's what the Bible says dead from God, separated from God now there are many scriptures that sort of confirm this and and reinforce this we've just got a time to look at a couple Ephesians chapter 4 further on in Ephesians let's look at verse 17 and 18 Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, he says, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. That's speaking of those who were not believers at this time. In the futility of their mind. Having their understanding darkened. Being alienated, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. See what that says? He's saying the sinfulness of your hearts, of those who are not who yet turned to Christ, in other words, every one of us was in this position, the sinfulness of their hearts and our hearts separated us from God, and it... That sinfulness affected us so much that it actually darkened our minds. We couldn't even think clearly about spiritual things. We couldn't even think about God in a right way. And Romans chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. Romans 6, 17 and 18. He says, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And that's speaking of the gospel of Christ. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Slaves of sin. That that means actually sin dominated us so much that we, we couldn't free ourselves from it. There was a... A binding effect upon our lives. Sin held us in its grip. Didn't Jesus say, out of the heart, out of the inside, out of the depths of our being proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. And and the list could go on. In other words, the trouble isn't on the outside, it's, it's on the inside came across this by Martin Lloyd, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, and it's it in his commentary um, on um, Ephesians. And he says, he says, "You cannot understand life as it is in this world at the moment unless you understand this biblical doctrine of sin." He says, "I go further. I suggest that you cannot understand the whole of human history apart from this." with all its wars and its quarrels and its conquests, its calamities and all that it records. I assert that there is no adequate explanation save in the biblical doctrine of sin. And this, this teaching is absolutely foundational to understand the world that we're in and to understand your own heart, my heart. Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful desperately wicked who can know it, it's twisted that's true of the most respectable person as well as the best person and the worst person whatever it is, it, 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 it covers everybody the, the theologians have a, um, a phrase or a, ty- a, a word or yeah, a phrase that describes this as total depravity the total depravity of the heart and it doesn't mean that we and are born and in our natural state are as bad as we could be, but it does say every part of our human nature is tainted, tainted by sin. So even good people are sinful. Many good people around, aren't they? There are many non Christians who are better than Christians in their lives. There's some wonderful people out there who. You know, do great things, wonderful things. And you've got to take your hat off to them and say, well, that's great. But the very best falls so far short below God. And has a sinful heart. And is dead in God's eyes. Now, you say this, and, and it's not a very pleasant thing to say. It's, it, it isn't. You know, it's not very popular. People find it hard to, to accept and to swallow. I told this story a few months back in our evening service of an old mountaineer who was cut off from civilization for years. He lived with his old wife in a wood cabin and he wandered the mountains alone. And one day he was out walking and he found a mirror, never seen one before. And when he looked at it and he saw his own reflection, he said, my word, if it's not a picture of my old dad... So he took the mirror home, pleased as anything with what he'd found, and he hid it in one of his drawers. A few weeks later his wife was looking for something belonging to him and she came across the mirror and she looked into it and said, so that's the ugly woman he's been seeing behind my bag. <laughs> it can be quite a shock to see ourselves as we really are. A Scottish woman called uh, Mrs. McGregor. She... she took exception to a preacher who was preaching about sin and she was really upset with him because he was saying that everyone was a sinner. And so she went up to him after the service and explained all the good things that she was and she'd done. And the preacher listened and said, well, he said, can I, can I just have a look at your Bible? And she was carrying this Bible, which was an heir, a family heirloom. It's an old Bible and she gave it to him. And he opened it at a passage and, and, and he took out his pen as if to write on it. And Mrs. McGregor says, you can't do that. That's been passed down from my great-grandma. And he said, well, he said, it says here, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I was just going to write, for all have sinned except Mrs. McGregor. And then, he, and then he turned to another passage. And he was about to write in it again. And he says, no, you can't do that. And he said, well, it says here, all we like sheep have got astray. And I was going to write, all except Mrs. McGregor. And she said, all right, I'll see your point. I agree, I'm a sinner. And as she turned away, she said, but listen, I'm a good one. <laughs> we, we can be so loath to accept where we stand, how we stand, how we really stand before God. We don't like being told that we have a sinful nature and that we're dead. But Paul hadn't finished yet. Let's go back to verse 2. And let me just read from uh, verse uh, 1 and then into verse 2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. It says, you once walked according to the course of this world. What's, what's the world? Well, in the, the Bible uses the word world in different ways. Sometimes it refers to the earth, the planet, you know, the, the physical earth. Sometimes it refers to the people, You know, for God so loved the world. That's that's the people that he gave his only begotten son. By far the most common way it's used in the New Testament is when it refers to the world without God. If you like, the world system. The world with all of its godless ideas and its outlook and philosophies and thoughts and all of those priorities and values that are there without God. That's what the Bible describes as the world. So John says in his, one of his epistles, love not the world. So he's not saying don't love the people, and don't love the planet. He, he's talking about this world in, with all of its godlessness, with, with when you take God out. I think there's a way in which it's sort of very similar way that we use the word because we talk about, for example, for example, the world of fashion. And that's not so much speaking about just the people or even the material things, but it's, it's talking about the whole entity, isn't it, of the fashion world with its thoughts, its views, its, its ideas, its designs and all of that. The world of fashion. And when you think of it, the world of fashion influences us so much. It even dictates what people wear or don't wear. Now, it, it's not wrong to be a follower of fashion. It, you know, you, it's, it's good to be fashionable, and that's not wrong at all. But can't you see how the world of fashion is so much dominated by things that pander to pride, vanity, even <coughs> materialism, greed, Covetousness, lots of other things like that, aren't they? Lots of other things. So the world of fashion, in a sense, there's good in it, but actually th- there's a driving force behind it. I think in the world of television, you know, the world of films, and, and there's some good, wholesome things, aren't there, to watch. And, yeah. But then you think of all that's driving that. And when it's the language, the attitudes to sex, and the, all, all of the distorted ways and values and things behind the world of television, the world of the media. What about the world of music? So much about fame and money and adulation, idolatry. And again, sex, obs- sex obsessed. Now, it's not that it's all wrong, but you can see the system of almost. And I was thinking of, you know, you have the world of politics, the world of sport, the world of even science, and education, and all of those things. The world of business. If you put all of those things together, you have a world that has much good in it, many wholesome things. But there's so much godlessness there, if you like. God's out of it. And it influences us, and it, and it grips us, and it, and it, and it sways us. And so when the Bible speaks of the world in that sense, we were, you know, if we followed the course of this world, put all of those things together, and it's saying we were actually slaves to that. We were so influenced by these things. And they dominate our lives. Why is that? Well, he goes on to say, verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He's talking about the devil there. He's talking about the prince of the power of the earth, the the world. Jesus said the devil was the prince of the world. So behind this world system, behind the sin of our hearts, we, we can't ignore the fact that there is a spiritual force at work, Who is called the Bible calls Satan the devil, father of lies, and all of that. And he is moving, working. You you can't you can't understand this world if you take out sin and the devil. You really can't. Has it all just evolved? All of this evil, all of this cruelty, all of this has it just developed? Or has it been orchestrated? Has has there been a force and power behind it? The the Bible says there is. Now, these are some of the most foundational truths to get hold of. Most important truths to get hold of. I, I would say there's nothing more important than to grasp hold of the reality of our condition before God outside of Christ. At the end of chapter 1, I I referred to the fact that Paul prayed this prayer, amazing prayer. And look what he prayed at verse 19 through to 21. Chapter 1, verse 19. He prayed that they might know, we might know, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Now in the Old Testament, power was measured by God's creation. And by his deliverance of his people from Egypt. Today. We measure God's power by the resurrection. And the ascension. And the exaltation of Christ. And when God raised Christ from the dead. The wonderful thing is. Don't ask me how to explain this. He raised you. If you're a Christian. From the dead with Christ. Because somehow. Wonderfully. He united you and me with his son. So you. You who were dead in your sins, have been raised to life. Now I I believe that this is what Paul is seeking to show in these verses. And and why? Why why is he going to such great lengths to say you're dead and hammers it home? Why does he show our utter helplessness? As I said at the beginning, he's not trying to depress us. He's not trying to flatten us. He's showing that God had to do something of such an amazing nature if you and I were ever to be made alive and to be brought into a relationship with God. You know, becoming a Christian isn't just about receiving forgiveness for your sins. It's not just about having assurance of sins forgiven. It's about God overcoming our utter deadness our utter helplessness, our uselessness before him. And raising us up in Christ and bringing new life into our lives. Now, friends, nothing less than the mighty power of God could have done that for you. That's what Paul is saying at the end there. He's saying that they might see this and understand this power that's at work in you. This amazing, awesome power of God has given you life. You were dead. I was dead in my sins. And God broke that deadness, brought me into life, and has now raised me up with Christ. You see, we'll never appreciate the power of God that's been working in us until we see the depth of our sin. Until we know and see how dead we, we were. Until we see the power that sin had over us and the hopelessness of our condition we'll never appreciate the love of God. We'll never realise the height to which we've been brought until we recognise the depth to which we'd sunk. If we're not clear about our condition before we were saved, we'll never see how great a salvation God has provided us in Christ. Now we're saved. And I think that's what Paul's concerned about. That you and I might grasp hold of this. This amazing power that's at work. We might know, he says in chapter 1 verse 18, Lord, open their eyes to see. God wants you, your eyes, my eyes to be open to see what God has done. As I say, Chris, some, some think that Christianity is just about God forgiving us. No, that's wonderful. Or about God giving us eternal life. That's wonderful, that's amazing. It's much, much more than that every believer has been raised from the dead and brought into the newness of life in Christ and raised up with Christ so much so that we sit, you sit in the heavenlies, the Bible says. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing, united with Christ, freed from sin's power, freed from Satan's power. Nothing less than the almighty power of God can do that. Now, when we get hold of this, that affects everything. It affects every part of our lives. It affects your love for God. How can you not love a God who's done that? It affects your praise life. How could you not praise God forever for what he's done in raising you from the dead? Your prayer life, when you think that this could be other people's, they could experience this. How could you not pray? How can I not intercede for others to come to know Christ? Your devotional life. Your, your life of consecration. How could you not want to serve such a God? With all of your heart and strength. Your battles with sin and temptation. You know the power of God. He's at work in you. It's, it was at work in you from the very beginning. Raising you from the dead. And now it's at work in you now. The, ra- the same power that raised Christ from the dead. You know, grasping hold, hold of these trees will affect every part of our lives. <coughs> He's made you alive when you, once de- when you were once dead. And friends, if you haven't experienced this th- this morning and you, ha- you don't know this relationship with God in Christ you haven't given your heart to Christ and confessed to Him your need of His salvation then you are Dead. You're dead now, to God. It's not to say you might not be religious. It's not to say you might not be living in best life as you can. but the Bible defines you as without a relationship with God. And that's spiritual death. Just close with a sort of sort of illustration. Imagine that you wake up one morning and you're feeling awful you're feeling sick you just well you're feverish and you drag yourself off to the doctors you go into the doctor's surgery and, and you know he feels your pulse he takes your blood pressure he looks at your tongue he checks your heart and it all goes all goes through all of that and then he just writes out a prescription for some medication and says goodbye to you and you say to your doctor but doctor what, what's wrong with me And he says, oh, he says, you've just got a bad case of bubonic plague, that's all. And you say, isn't that serious? Aren't you going to send me to hospital? People don't walk around with bubonic plague, do they? Don't don't they die from that? And imagine the doctor shrugging his shoulders and said, well, you've got to die sometime. Might as well be a bubonic plague as anything besides he says diseases diseases don't really interest me now if you need cosmetic surgery now I'll talk to you about that so would you be grateful to your doctor for being nice and kind and considerate not telling you about your real condition no not if you know that that condition can be healed and God's done that He's told us our true condition is here. Our spiritual condition. Not only that, he's told us there's a cure. But there is only one cure. And that's Christ, his son. In fact, God himself has become the cure. And that's amazing. God took our disease... All of our disease. In his son on the cross. Took your disease. The disease of that sin. That's caused death. And he took that. So that you. Could have life. And be forgiven. And cleansed. And have a relationship. With God. So. Do you see your need of a cure this morning? Would you like that cure? Of knowing. Sins forgiven. Yeah that's wonderful. Knowing. Knowing. An assurance that you have a relationship with God. Knowing the life of God flowing through you. That's what's on offer. That's what God offers because he loves you in spite of your sin. So if you've never come to Christ, never trusted in him, then I would invite you and urge you to do that this morning. Touch him, reach out, call upon him, cry out to Christ. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved, scripture says. And that's the cure, that's the cure. Paul goes on to say, and this uh, we'll close with this, in uh, chapter two, he says, uh, "Yeah, we were dead in sins and dead in our trespasses, but verse four, but God, God who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ." Let's pray. God offers. Us salvation he offers us new life in Christ he wants us to enter into a relationship with him he wants us to know that joy of his presence in our lives we can't earn it we don't deserve it the Bible says it's for by grace are you saved through faith not of yourselves it's the gift of God Lord, I pray for any here this morning who haven't experienced that and who deep down are hearing your voice right now, hearing that tug of their hearts, as it were, calling them into a relationship with you. Would you give them the gift of faith to trust in Christ? Help them, Lord, to see their sin on Jesus. Help them to see that they need to confess that, repent of that and turn to him and find salvation today. And Lord, for us who know the Lord, Lord, thank you for what you've done. How we praise you, almighty God, because of that great love that you lavished on us when you sent your son to die for us. Lord, our hearts are filled with thanksgiving for all that you've done. Help us to live our lives in the light of that, Lord. Help us to serve you. Help us to live for you. Help us to have done with things that grip us and, Lord, are not right for us, whether they be sinful things or things that just weigh us down. We're sorry, Lord, that we're so quick to allow sin to grip hold of us. Lord, we pray, give us a new heart, a new love, a new desire to please you. So, Lord, part us, we pray, with just joy in our hearts, that we who were once enemies of God, under the wrath of God, have now been made sons and daughters of his. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to talk...